Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On our show today, our guest is Alan Corbin, co-chair of NOMAS, the National Organization for Men Against Sexism. Alan also works as the assistant registrar of Fuller Theological Seminary, where he received his Master of Arts in Theology. We will be talking with Alan today about his work at NOMAS, what it means to be a pro-feminist, anti-racist, LGBTQ affirmative male ally, and how we can integrate religion and our spiritual practices and beliefs in a post-2016 election world. Welcome to our show, Alan. Thank you. So to begin with, your organization, NOMAS, it stands for National Organization for Men Against Sexism. Tell me, what is sexism and misogyny, and how do they differ? Sexism is the social structural oppression of women by um, everything from the banking institution and laws about women inheriting property, um, when and whether they can vote. That's sexism, and it's legal, societal representation. Misogyny is more of an emotional, psychological hatred of the female, women in general, or the female as a category. The National Organization for Men Against Sexism started as a group of men who were in a women's studies class, I believe it was in Tennessee, in 1975, and they had to do a project for that class, and they decided to hold a conference. The second year of the conference, the venue for the conference was withdrawn, I think it was two weeks before the conference, because a gay man had been invited to speak, and so the issue of LGBTQ came up as part of the organizational platform of of the incipient organization. And then a couple of years later, somebody pointed out that there was a lot of white people at this conference, mostly academics, and that anti-racism was an important element. And so those became the three planks for NOMAS. First wanted to call it the National Organization for Men because the National Organization for Women, they wanted that parallel, but a squatter had already secured those rights Then it was the National Organization for Changing Men, which always raised the question, changing men from what and to what. And also the acronym of NOCM either sounded like a pro-nuclear organization or a sexual dysfunction. And so National Organization for Men Against Sexism had the added advantage of being Spanish nomas for no more. Ah, very clever. So you mentioned the origins of nomas in terms of some of the original organizers participating in a feminist class. How did you come to be part of the struggle to end sexism and find feminism? I came in the worst, most inappropriate way possible. I was crushing on a woman who described herself as a feminist, and I thought, if I had any chance of establishing a long-term relationship with this woman, I'd have to find out about this feminism stuff. (laughs) Was this in college? No, this was at Fuller. Oh, okay, in grad school. And so you don't normally expect to get feminist classes, but Karen Jo Torgerson, Dr. Torgerson, was teaching a class on women in, in the history of theology. 
And I took that class because it was about feminism. It met an elective. And I found that so rewarding personally to me that I decided I was going to take all of the classes that Fuller offered. And eventually there was a class being taught by Jack Balswick, who's a sociologist in the school of psychology here, and Gary Sattler, who's a church historian. And they had a class called Men in Difficult Times. They wanted to call it Men in Hard Times, but the seminary objected to the name. And so, as Gary Sattler pointed out, they had us between a rock and a difficult place. And so they called the class Men in Difficult Times. And that was my first introduction to pro-feminist men. I got introduced to a conference of men that was happening in San Francisco. These were men in the 12-step movement, so men in recovery, John Lee and Shepard Bliss and those types. And I went to that conference. They were almost exclusively about men dealing with issues in the recovery movement. But that introduced me to a conference happening in Texas, the first international men's conference. Martin Anderson down there in Texas was having a conference. I went to that, which was intended to be a bringing together of all the different tribes of the men's movement, 12-step men, pro-sex men, male supremacists, men's rights, father's rights, and this one little pro-feminist man, Michael Kimmel. Mm. He was, as far as I could tell, he was the only pro-feminist man there. And he had a little talk called tame questions for wild men. And he talked about the mythopoetic men's movement. And that conversation was so helpful for me in understanding what was going on in the mythopoetic men's movement that I followed him to NOMAS. And so I went to my first NOMAS conference in 1995 in Pennsylvania. I, that was so rewarding that I hosted a conference, the Men and Masculinities Conference that NOMAS put on I did that in Pasadena in 1999 and joined the council in 2001 and have been with NOMAS ever since. So I'm actually surprised that there were so many options available at Fuller in terms of feminist classes, especially at a you know theological seminary. Is, is that unusual compared to the other seminaries across the country? I think more and more as mainline denominations were ordaining women. Certainly, there are still denominations that do not, but as more mainline denominations were ordaining women, those classes became more common. Now, Fuller has about 2,800 students every quarter at the time, and that's far larger than many of the mainline denominational seminaries in the United States. So when you have that many students and uh, roughly... 35, 40% of those students are female. Classes that cover women in ministry, women in church history and theology had a lot of interest. And so my taking two or three classes over the course of a year, I took most of the classes that came up, but they were pretty much always elective. There was a women and men in ministry class that was that met a requirement for students in the Master Divinity program that introduced students who might or might not come from a denomination that ordained women to the idea of men and women working as clergy in the future. And what was it about those initial classes that you participated in that really opened your eyes, you know, transformed you as you described? Yeah, there were a handful of 
particular moments where insight into my own self was profound. One of them, in a particular passing reference, we were talking about courtly love in the Renaissance period, and the professor in passing said, given the roles at the time, getting to have a wife was reason enough to be born male because of the role that a wife played in society. And I realized that in many ways I had been trying in my own self to head off problems, figure out how to prevent things from going badly, that those were the things that wives were expected to be doing at the time. And I thought, wow, in some ways I have been prepared to be a good wife in a relationship. But that's not exactly what I thought I was supposed to be. I remember my dad saying to me, a guy who can't handle himself in the kitchen isn't ready to get married. Now go make me a bologna sandwich. So he did it kind of as a joke, but I took that with a certain amount of seriousness. And when we talked about domestic violence in the church and the church's acquiescence to that, or forgiving were concealing that. I remembered my mom taking me when I was six or seven to help a woman get out of a, a violent situation while her husband wasn't home. So we went over there and loaded up the car and we all had to get out of there before anyone came back. So those moments flashed to me in this feminist theology class. And so then I started looking at what patriarchy cost me in the men in difficult times class. And I realized, yeah, the whole thing about policing men and homophobia, you can't have anyone thinking I was gay. So you couldn't be physically affectionate with a guy that I loved and cared about. You can't be tender because that's not what a man is supposed to be. All of those structures and, and boys don't cry. All of those issues came up. And I said, this feminism stuff is really rewarding. And the woman I had thought to be interested in graduated and went on, but I kept taking the classes because they were so valuable for me to understand myself and my society. Women sat in on the provost office and demanded to be allowed to be part of getting the Master of Divinity degree because they couldn't do that before. I said, here is a piece of the history of the Christian church in the United States where I can watch and see how women have progressed the issue of inclusive language on the horizontal level, as well as the inclusive language about understanding God is not explicitly and exclusively male. All of that was really valuable for me, eye-opening. So I stayed with it. Mm-hmm. And did you have other male allies in your class or friends or classmates that you were able to explore these ideas with, or were you mainly speaking with women? I'm, I'm, I'm asking because I'm wondering if that's an important part of being able to process these ideas and enact them more effectively. Absolutely having other men to talk about this. We actually had a small group of about six or seven that met every week just to discuss issues about parenting, about sexual relationships, about the assumption of violence or coercive control, or what does male headship mean in a Christian context because there are biblical verses that have become radioactive in their typical expression. So yeah, I was talking with men regularly, and then the class of Men in Difficult Times was about 
60% men, 40% women, because here was a class that was an elective, not a surprise to be having a chance to have those conversations. It's extremely valuable. So what does it mean to be sexist or engage in sexist and misogynistic behavior? And who can be that? Can men and women be that? Absolutely a qualitative issue to be discussed first. I understand and accept the feminist analysis that the hierarchies are tied to power relationships, structures and systems in society. And so I would not accept, for example, that a woman could be sexist. She can be prejudiced. She can be abusive. She can be hostile. She can be reprehensible. But the issue of whether a woman can be sexist, because you define sexism in terms of social power multiplying individual prejudice, I would say that a woman can't be sexist. I would say that a white person can be racist, but a black person, a person of color, can't be racist in the same way. They can be prejudiced or biased. They can be hostile and abusive. But I would not, as a technical definition, say a black person can be racist. There's internalized racism and then there's internalized sexism and there's a piece there. What a, a structural understanding says is I got taught to be sexist, racist, heterosexist. I got taught by loving parents who meant well. I got taught to be these things by trusted clergy and dear members of my family. It was reinforced in all the books and novels and movie scripts. It would, my friends taught it to me because that was all that they knew. So yes, I got taught to be a sexist. I got taught because I was here in the United States. It's hard to imagine not being a sexist in the United States. The difference is, as soon as I recognize that, I can be responsible and decide to try and walk against that pattern and learn something. I got taught sexist like I was being taught capitalism, like being taught germ theory. It came in with the ground of water and became an unquestioned worldview assumption. Materialism, I got taught that and it never really gets questioned until someone comes along and says, no, the capitalist system has some problems and let's look at those. And the first time you think about capitalism from outside, the first time you think about sexism from outside, you get a perspective on it. You can start to question that and say, you know what, maybe that's not the best way of doing things. So I think all men in our culture in the United States get taught to be sexist and some men more deeply identify with that. And I think some men more profoundly walk against those patterns and struggle to recognize sexism in their lives and resist it. It takes a lot of work, just like it takes a lot of work getting out of unquestioned worldview assumptions in other areas. But yeah, men, I'm a sexist and I'm trying to change as opposed to say a sexist who's proselytizing and trying to perpetuate sexism. I think your Jerry Falwell's, your folks who are trying in the Christian tradition, folks who are trying to perpetuate sexism, as opposed to folks who are trying to undercut sexism, that's the difference. I don't feel guilty about being sexist because I was raised without my, I was raised that way without my consent, without my knowledge. And now when I'm trying to work against that sexism, I can feel good about it. And when somebody gives me the feedback that I'm still being sexist, I can say, okay, well, 
it's another thing to learn and I will try and go forward because feeling guilty or getting defensive, those are unhelpful responses as opposed to trying to say something to a sexist pickup artist or the men's rights advocates who espouse misogyny and try and perpetuate it. Yeah, those those folks are are trying to make society continue to be sexist in a way. That's where I think there's guilt that will ultimately be crippling. So in the absence of someone being able to access feminist studies classes or a community or family members who understand systemic sexism, what can the average person, I guess the average man do? How do they actually access feminism and feminist behaviors and policies? If, if you want to learn about anything, you make an effort. And if you don't have someone to tell you, you can still find stuff. There's Feminism 101, there's blogs online, so you can read there. You can go and read a book by Andrea Dworkin and find out why so many women have been so angry for so long. Andrea Dworkin spoke at a NOMAS conference, and the anger was there, but also the expression of belief in the humanity of men. It's easy to hear the misogynists and the uh, men's rights advocates complain about women being man-haters. I have not found that to be true. There are certainly angry women. And when I think of how much they have put up with, I understand the anger. And I think I don't get to tell them not to be angry. I'm angry myself when I realize just how bad it has been. And so I go out looking to try and find the information, whether it's a class or an online. I can go, if I'm interested in fiction, I can read The Handmaid's Tale and say, wow, there really are a lot of parallels to what's going on. Not exactly, but I can see why someone is worried about what our president is saying, given what this novel describes. So getting Finally Feminism on uh, YouTube and seeing those channels and kind of going through the tropes and saying, yeah, you know what? I recognize that women don't seem to be allowed to be whole, flawed individuals on film. They're either the stereotype of the Madonna or the negative stereotype. I don't want to use the the language. It's radioactive and and everybody knows what words I'm going to use there. rather not give them the airtime. Those sorts of things, you can spend the effort. You can find people, their books and places and groups. Find a feminist bookstore and pick up a couple of novels, pick up a couple of textbooks. There are easy introductions. And in the Christian world, you could look at Karen Ellen Oseek and her book, Beyond Anger. Rosemary Radford Ruther, Elizabeth Schusler Friorenza. These are all people who have written books that are accessible to scholars and lay people alike. I'd love to have this as a job. Barbara Ehrenreich's book on the hearts of men and nickel and dimes. And these are wonderful places where you can access this, the analysis, the feminist analysis of our society. And the Bechtel test, you can look at our movies and say, how many movies have a named female character who gets to say lines to another female character that aren't about men? When you count those movies and recognize, wow, that's not a lot of films. You start to see just how sexist the culture is and how invisible the sexism is 
until you start looking for it. And once you start looking for it, you can start being angry, but then you can turn that energy into trying to make a world where those things are no longer true. It's the right thing to do, but also it aids, this is kind of the second level, it makes my life richer to be in more connection with other men, with other women, with colleagues, with friends, with people I love, the friends and colleagues, as well as family members who have a better life, women who have a better life because society is not sexist. I think those are important things to do, not only because it's the right thing to do generally, because it also benefits the people I care about and me. Yeah. And I think those are great ideas. And especially, you know, in today's society where you have access to, there are negatives, of course, to social media, but the positive is you can actually access communities who share your values or your aspirational values and can be informative. So I think, yeah, those are great ideas. Absolutely. And the NOMAS website, we have a presence on Facebook. There are people discussing issues all the time, uh, trying to figure out what's the best way to respond, working together to say, how does one react to the president bragging about sexual assault? How do you react to normalizing of uh, abusive language? When a member of Congress says to a reporter, I'll try and speak in small words so that you understand, that that sort of thing is unconscious to many men. And as soon as it's pointed out, the typical reaction is getting defensive or denying it or saying, I wasn't intending to be, I'm sorry if you took offense and trying to figure out, you know, there's a better way of apologizing even. There's a better way of coming to recognize our own complicity in this. And one of those ways is to not claim to be an ally, but to do the work. And if a woman or a person of color or LGBTQI plus person says of me, you know that Alan, that person, Alan is being an ally, as opposed to my claiming to be an ally, because that's one of the reasons that NOMAS is not an organization of men, it's an organization for men, is men can get together and think they're doing great things about ending sexism, but if there aren't women there saying, let me tell you that you think you're doing great work, but you're really not. Let me give you feedback on how what you think is so good is actually making it more difficult for us to live in the world. That sort of accountability of men to women, that sort of accountability of white people to people of color, that sort of accountability of straight people to LGBTQI people, that's the beginning of really doing the work that the society needs to do to have a coordinated community response to end those isms, to making unquestioned worldview assumptions visible and questioned and ultimately, I think, rejected. Mm-hmm. And so I actually want to turn now to the task forces that since that you mentioned that you reference online, these communities. So one of the task forces that NOMAS has is the Reproductive Rights Task Force. And, you know, when people hear that phrase, their definition is often limited to abortion and the right of a woman to terminate her pregnancy or possibly birth control. But the flip side is too that reproductive rights is also about when and how a woman may choose to parent, 
whether it is through artificial insemination, surrogacy, delaying childbirth, or even, you know, whether they choose not to parent. So what role do men have or should they have in advancing reproductive rights for women? And and why is it relevant for men? As an issue about abortion, NOMAS kind of follows the lead of the National Organizations for Women. I think NOMAS thinks it's right that women have autonomy about their own bodies and whether they want to reproduce or not, they're abortion on demand, no hurdles, no restrictions, no apologies. But we completely affirm the right of women to determine them for themselves. Men also want to be parents and should be invested in when the when their partner is pregnant, they should be involved in being loving, caring, responsible adults in a situation where they are partnered with someone who's raising a child. The subtleties of the difference between single parents doing that, co-parenting, whether it's a same-sex couple or man and woman, all of those elements kind of play in and get nuanced in particular discussions. But men should definitely be involved in that wherever their responsibility is is requested. If a woman wants to have a child on her own and wants to be artificially inseminated and, and the typical claim that child ought to have two parents, no, a child doesn't need two parents. A child just needs a parent who's responsible and invested, who's healthy and mature. And if that's two women or if it's one woman or if it's two men or trans individuals uh, bothered by the news that uh, uh, now I've forgotten which state it was that just denied same-sex couples the right to adopt. All of those things are tied to heterosexism and patriarchal structures and assumptions about who should or should not be having children. Men need to be involved in that to support the right of women to their own bodily autonomy and, and being parents. So you mentioned homophobia, which is another task force, homophobia, heterosexism, and LGBT affirmative. What is homophobia and how does it relate to masculinity and gender? Heterosexism is, again, the structural cultural piece tied to legislation and systems and newspaper reporting and all that sort of thing. Homophobia is the irrational fear of someone either who is gay or my own perception of whether or not someone perceives me as gay. So I'm homophobic if I'm worried that someone will think I'm gay. So if I'm walking with another male friend and I'm physically affectionate with that friend and I suddenly get worried that someone's going to think I'm gay, that's an expression of homophobia. And just like sexism and racism, I was taught homophobia with the groundwater by people who also didn't know any better. And it, And once I realized that cripples, it partializes my own life, that somehow I can only find emotional support in a woman who's romantic, who I'm being romantic with, that dramatically limits my human connectedness, which is rich and appropriately healing. It also puts too much stress on a romantic relationship to think that I'm going to get all of my needs met in one person, which I think is uh, set up for failure or frustration at least. So 
the fact that I don't have to find all of my emotional support in just a romantic partner, I think that also plays into men's usual claim that they're being put in the friend zone, which is really men putting women in the girlfriend zone, which that's a whole nother issue. But the idea that that's tied fundamentally to homophobia and men's fear of being too emotionally open with another man for because they panic that somebody might think I'm gay, as if that was a bad thing, those are all so intimately tied up and the unquestioned worldview assumptions need to be brought out into the light and seen. And then we can begin to question those and, I think, need to reject those. I can find lots and lots of emotional support in lots and lots of people. They aren't all romantic and they shouldn't all be romantic. And that makes my life richer and it makes the lives of people I care about richer. Yeah. And the example you were giving, if you were, you know, walking closely with your friend, another male friend, it alludes to the relational aspects, the emotional aspects of your relationship that I think men aren't socialized to feel comfortable with. And in some cases, one can argue that our society actually tries to minimize and maybe even marginalize men who express emotions and elevate yeah. relations. So I think all of that, you know, if I can summarize, ties into the gender policing of how we behave, what is rewarded and, and what is rejected. Yeah. I'm in my 50s. There are people in their 30s and 20s and teens who have started to become more progressive on this. Once upon a time, you couldn't do anything because you might be accused of being gay. Then there came a period, oh, I don't know, maybe six, eight years ago where I started hearing, it seems to me, I'm sure that's not true universally, but it seemed to me that I was hearing it more from younger folks who would be actually physically affectionate, but then they would comment, oh, no homo. You know, I'm, I think there was a moment in, might have been Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but there's a sense in which when you found an emotional connection and support, you could have that, but then you had to explicitly say, but I'm not gay. Mm -hmm. I think you will get to a place culturally where we can just have the emotional support and not have to qualify it that it's not about being gay or not. The idea of a man who's emotionally available and open with people he's close to, that that's somehow seen as feminine. And because the feminine is seen as a negative, the worst thing you can do is call a man feminine or gay because that's those two get associated all the time for men. It becomes a real problem that it perpetuates all of the partitioning and structuring and cauterizing of male emotional health and connection by this policing of you don't want to be seen as gay, you don't want to be seen as like a woman. When we get to the point where we stop seeing those things as negative, our society will have progressed quite a bit farther than it is now. Yeah, and, and actually today I was really struck by Michelle Goldberg's column in the New York Times where she wrote about the fact that, you know, in the U.S. we're having less babies and her solution was we need less patriarchy. And, and that's been kind of my thought for many years is that 
modern men have not been taught how to be equal partners to women. And maybe they're not able to meet the needs of women. And that could be, you know, in my opinion, one of the reasons why women are maybe having fewer babies and because of, you know, marriage, lower marriage rates and partnerships, just because they're not finding, you know, the right person. Yeah. If if men were taught that being nurturing and caregiving and responsible and invested and emotionally open and available, those sorts of men end up in better relationships, whoever their partner is. And if their partners can get pregnant, that sort of emotional connection lends itself to the men being better parents. And if you have two people who want to be parents and both are good at the kind of nurturing that parenting requires, that just seems like a logical next step. I understand entirely people not wanting to have children if their relationship is fraught or tense or painful, who would want to bring a child into that sort of relationship? And so the more men get trained in all of the things that make lives richer, that they have more connections with more people and they can be emotionally available, those things benefit the men in their own lives and benefit the likelihood of them being parents and being with someone who would want to be a parent with them. Mm, I agree. All right. Well, let's turn to another area that NOMAS is interested in through the task force on sex trafficking, pornography, and the commercial sex industry, which is ironic because the sex industry is one of the few industries, I should specify pornography is one of the few industries where women make more money on average than men, substantially more. And, you know, at the same time, one of the basic tenets of feminism is that gender justice cannot happen without economic justice. So what do you say to a woman who's benefiting from the disparity of pornography and voluntarily um, engaging in this commercial sex trade in any way? What's NOMAS's stand on these issues? The first thing I want to say is that NOMAS isn't, as an organization for men against sexism, I can't see any way to be a pro-feminist man and support a man's right to purchase the use of a woman's body or anyone's body, actually, for that matter. Um, I can't see any way of being pro-feminist and support the right of a man to purchase a woman to use as he would wish. And so NOMAS is an abolitionist organization. We're not, we want to see pornography and prostitution and um, sex trafficking eliminated entirely. More of the Nordic model where you criminalize the pimps and the johns as opposed to the women and children used in prostitution, those people need to be given economic alternatives. But NOMAS, as an organization for men, isn't interested in telling women what they should or should be doing. That feels, to me, very much like a condescending thing. And so when NOMAS is speaking, I think we're speaking to legislators and people in positions of power about what should be the case and what is appropriate in a society that is progressive and forward thinking. And so economic justice would want to see women having lots and lots of opportunities economically to do whatever they want. So 
addressing as a public issue whether or not men should have the right to purchase women, I can say that to a legislator without saying anything to a woman who's in the sex industry. So it really is a matter of who we're talking to and what we're talking about. I don't want to condescend to any woman, and that woman can have her own conversation with legislators. I just don't think another man should have the right to purchase a woman's body for his own use. So NOMAS is an abolitionist organization in, in very much in that case. And we follow the lead of feminist women, Gail Dines and folks like that, Catherine McKinnon, in trying to say that these things are not appropriate for a progressive society to have going on. It's just structurally damaging to women to exploit at the point of their oppression. So let me just clarify, because getting to economic equality for women is a process. So in the interim, let's say we have laws in place right now to prohibit commercial sex trafficking or prostitution or pornography. What do you say to someone who wants to voluntarily be in a relationship where they are getting in return, maybe not the financial exchange, but there's some value in this, let's say, woman using her body or sex to receive in exchange some benefit, such as housing or childcare or food even, or safety from somebody or some situation that is even more dangerous. Oh gosh, there's so much to discuss there. I don't want anyone in a situation where that has to be coercive choice that they're faced with, well, I can do this and live or I cannot live. That's reprehensible. That, that's truly a society that's not taking care of its members. In terms of someone choosing to do that, I'm reminded of my feminist history and feminist analysis classes that complained that what a marriage was back in Renaissance days was primarily a financial contract and the woman was simply a way of sealing uh, a business relationship between two families. And that feels to me an inappropriate metaphor in the 21st century. Again, I don't want to tell a woman what to do with her life or how to run her life. That's not my place. I can only say what I want for a society that doesn't force any woman into that as her only option. If a woman chooses that entirely and I think it's possible that someone can be in a situation. It's probably two, maybe 3% of women who are in those sorts of situations who do actually freely choose and are under no coercion or no duress in trying to make those decisions. But I'm not persuaded to make national or local policy based on such a small minority I want to make policy based on the 97 or 98 percent of women who end up being used in prostitution because they're runaways or have no other options. And so this is their only way out. And I understand and I don't want them in that situation. And I don't feel like I can make a public policy 
or legislative solution based on the two or three percent who really do freely choose this. So I want to turn your attention now to a post on your site entitled, quote, Intersectional Dominance, White Straight Christian Patriarchy Won the Election, unquote. So first, I want to thank Nomas for posting this article. I think, for me at least, it really summarized all of the issues that we've been confronted with over the past, I guess, 17, 18 months and drill in to the part about Christian patriarchy. So as a religious scholar, how do you reconcile the fact that people who call themselves Christians are basically complicit in accepting the behavior that this administration has been exhibiting all this time? That is such a painful topic for me. I'm involved in a number of conversations with folks who are supporting this administration, who forgive the comments from our sexual aggressor in chief, who brags about sexual assault, and then claims not only that he apologizes in locker room talk and it wasn't actually his voice, and that it's it's embarrassing to me that those folks who have for so long wanted to be the party of family values, responsibility, and words that they generally put together with morality are so forgiving and excusing and complicit. Every one of those conversations is more and more painful to me. I'm looking for, again and again, the, the religious left to stand up the folks like Sojourners and Jim Wallace and folks like that who are saying the president and his attitudes do not represent at all what Jesus called for in, in this particular case. I also find these elements in other traditions, so not just Christian. Jews are interested in healing the world, and this does not feel like healing. This feels like the worst possible expression of it. Robert Jensen said that pornography is what the end of the world looks like, and we have a president who seems hell-bent on perpetuating that, splitting up families at the border, building walls, when you are not supposed to treat the outcast in your midst, the widows and orphans, you're supposed to welcome and take care of them. Those are regular understandings in many religious traditions. I have found a lot of folks who see in their religious tradition, the motive force for making the world a better place. And I support that wholeheartedly. I do that within the Christian tradition as much as as I am able and have again and again, painful conversations with people who want to see this current administration as somehow ordained of God when they also say that Obama was the Antichrist. I think it's a denial of their own internalized sexism and then racism and heterosexism. I can't think of a more painful moment. And I think certainly the Christian church and the mainline denominations that have supported this administration are suffering. You ask young people today what evangelical Christian means, and they almost 201 say, oh, bigotry, hatred exclusion. And that is not a hopeful place for the church to be associated with. Well, is it fair to say that if someone 
supports the behaviors and policies that you described, the immigration policies of separating children from their parents and the very, very hateful rhetoric against anybody who's not white, basically, and the double standards that we've seen public as well as in law and policy that's being put forth. Is it fair to say that those people who claim to be Christian but are endorsing non-Christian behaviors are really not Christian? Or is it more complicated than that? Christianity also says you should not be judging. Um, And so I come to a conclusion that the folks who are supporting those behaviors, repeating those behaviors, endorsing those behaviors, they have a different analysis than I do, and I cannot stand with them, even though they may claim the same God that I claim. To cite a recent example, this is the uh, discussion of Christians who are saying of some of these things, this is not who we are. And I have a friend who says, well, yes, actually it is who you are. It's just not who you have to be, not how you must be. And you can do work so that you are not this any longer. Christianity has a long history of supporting racism, genocide, persecution of outsiders. It is a slow-fought battle. Martin Luther King said the the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And every time Christians come out in support of these policies, I think, yeah, it's it's bending toward justice when? Because I'm really waiting for the bend to start, because we are not bending towards justice very much. And I've been told that I've been listening to the devil or lied to by Satan. And it's hard to have a conversation with people who think I'm listening to the devil when I'm trying to be obedient to the words of the prophets and Jesus who says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In terms of that article, intersectional dominance, you know, with white, straight, Christian patriarchy, et cetera, what are your thoughts with regard to addressing any of these kinds of isms, racism, heterosexism, misogyny, and sexism, how can we be effective in addressing any of them without being intersectional and without having an intersectional lens? Or can progress still be made? From a marketing standpoint, it's easy to be a single issue organization. It makes your fan base or the people who are interested, it gives them a nice, straightforward access point. NOMAS has been from its origins a multi-issue. Obviously, we didn't call it intersectional back in 1978 or 79, but the history of the organization to add LGBT concerns of people of color, those things came on fairly early in the organization. And so, yes, you have to be intersectional on all of those. You can make little bits of progress if you're a one-issue organization, but recognizing the patterns, the repetitions, and the nuances of oppression over all the different isms, it's much harder to have the question of passing with a person of color versus an LGBTQ person. Passing is much more difficult for a person of color than that. So there are subtleties and nuances in trying to understand the issues. But all of them have to be addressed because the fundamental idea of 
hierarchy and some people having privileged access and power where other people do not is fundamentally corrosive to the humanity of the people with privilege, just as it is corrosive to the people who are being dominated. So you really do have to address all of them. And that goes beyond the three that show up in Noma's statement of principles. It also covers ableism and looksism and classism and all the other isms. Every time you structure a society that gives privileged access to some and not others, that's why I struggle with the folks who are trying to make this a theocracy. If you don't want Scientology to have a privileged place in this society and in legislation, then you should stop trying to get Christianity to have a privileged place in society and in legislation. If you want to rail against Sharia law in the society, you should not be trying to get your interpretation of the words of Paul enshrined in law in the society. I just think fair is fair and a society that is secular and does not promote any religion, even if it's my religion. I don't want my religion promoted any more than I want anyone else's religion promoted. So when the Hindu says to me, I don't want Christianity to have a privileged place, that makes sense to me because I don't want Hinduism or any other religion to have a privileged place because I think that's fair, equal treatment under the law. And so I will not claim a privileged place for Christianity, and I'll oppose the folks who do. And mostly those have been evangelical Christians who are clamoring for our current administration and their policies, which I think are profoundly unchristlike. I obviously can't say whether or not they're Christian, because that God alone is the one who judges people's hearts. But I can't call those people fine people on both sides of the argument. I think those people have revealed themselves to be in many ways sided with a deeply corrosive force within our society. One that is using Christianity in a cynical way to try and win political points and move a political conversation forward. Once upon a time, Christians weren't the moral majority. I think Christian theology has been weaponized against the traditional enemies of some of the worst racist and heterosexist members of our society. In our conversation, you've had an opportunity to share and reference lots of people who are in the movement, either through their writings or research. So if, if a man came to you who was openly sexist, but was open to changing his beliefs, what three books would you give to him to read and discuss with him? If you just had to narrow it down to three. I really like Robert Jensen's book on getting off. I really like Gail Dines. I like femicide. Um, I like the book femicide. Let me make that clear. I think Andrea Dworkin, all of her works are full of righteous anger. And if a man reading those works can put aside the impulse to become defensive and for rejecting um, or feeling guilty, I think those books are profoundly transformative. In the Christian tradition, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza's In Memory of Her was profound. Letty 
Russell's human liberation and feminist perspective. I like Carolyn O.C., Beyond Anger. Those are books that really helped me quite a bit. The wider context that's uh, less explicitly theological, getting something that's very accessible. I really like Nickel and Dimed and The Hearts of Men, Barbara Ehrenreich. There's so much to read and so much of it is good. I fear that I often give more academic responses because I spent 30 years in the academy and I'm trying to think of books that are more accessible to a general populace. A lot of people like Judith Butler, um, Gender Trouble. Well, I think those are all great suggestions. Thank you for them. So we're coming to a close in our conversation. And in the spirit of James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio, I have created an engendered questionnaire for all of our guests. There are three questions. First one is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What's at stake is the humanity of men. The lives of men are shortened because they have found it societally approved to be isolated and cut off from other people, to be unable to cry or unwilling to cry. The lives of men are shortened because they refuse to seek out doctor's care, to ask for directions, to give silly examples and serious examples. The lives of men are impacted by the structures of patriarchy. Now, those impacts are much to be preferred to the impact of the patriarchy on the lives of women. But it's the lives of women and men and those who don't accept a gender binary. All of those folks are at issue and at the heart of what needs to happen in tearing down the unquestioned worldview assumptions of male supremacy, white supremacy, heterosexist supremacy. Okay. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is the number of young people today I grew up and interracial dating was still a great big deal. The number of young people today who don't even think about it or when they hear somebody who is a problem for are just confused. Why would that be a problem? I like this person. They like me. It's not an issue. The number of folks today who find LGBTQ relationships, who find freedom in whoever we want to love, find profoundly moving and hopeful. And the final question, feel free to answer any or all of these. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop speaking to our listeners? What we can do more of is finding, I say this all the time, finding the unquestioned worldview assumptions, making them visible, however you do that. For some people, that's traveling outside the United States. For some people, it's reading books from other cultures. For other people, it's having conversations with folks you wouldn't normally have conversations. Explicitly going out and putting yourself in the context where you can hear someone else's story, someone else's very different story. To the extent that we believe that there's only one story, we partialize our own lives. 
So the one thing that I would recommend people do is finding other people's story and listening to those story and taking them in and thinking, how do I make the world a place where more stories can be told, more different stories can be told? Because a place where more and different stories can be told is going to be a healthier place for every single one of us. Thank you so much, Alan. I suspect that our conversation will activate some men to explore some of the resources and books and hopefully engage in conversations like this. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.